Uh, our subject, if I understand it correctly, is um, I could change the subject here to, to Philemon, which would work, wouldn't it? Um, is about political engagement, and I like to uh, take my guiding thoughts from Scripture, and I'd I'd like to quote Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God is what is God's. But I, I don't know what that means, and uh, it's so ambiguous and clever that uh, it, it's not a full-scale analysis of how to relate to the Roman Empire. But it was a shrewd moment by Jesus uh, that uh, divided the, the the crowds. But I do believe that there is a text in the New Testament that actually began to ask the question that we're, uh, we're asking today. And it asked the question of how should we relate to the Roman Empire as a minority voice. Uh, I'm not sure that what Peter says as a minority voice is adequate to explain a majority voice, but at least it explains a minority voice that would be a foundation. So I'd like to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 just briefly, um, and then I'm going to uh, launch into comments about the American election, and you'll all agree with me, and then you'll only be able to disagree with Peter, which I understand was part of the agenda today. But he paid for my dinner last night, so I have to be kind. That was part of it, wasn't it? He, he said bribery. First Peter chapter 2, Peter actually is addressing this issue. And he classifies the Christians in this letter with socioeconomic categories rather than spiritual categories. I urge you as foreigners and exiles. I understand that in the history of the church, we've kind of wandered into this being uh, sort of a pilgrim's progress that were exiles in this world. But the, the terms he's using, it's pretty standard in, in Petrine scholarship today that he's referring to people who have the socioeconomic status as foreigners and exiles, and they really are a minority voice without rights, and they're temporary residents working uh, temporarily in a location, and then uh, they may have to move on. That's the language he uses. But at any rate... Uh, I think he's talking to a minority voice. And here's his strategy for how to deal with Rome. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now that, I'll use this, I'll come back to this in just a minute, but I think Peter is saying here, in a sense, keep your head down, be good, don't get us in trouble, and we will have, uh, we will have a, a safe journey as we try to live in the Roman Empire as Christians. Uh, that's the sort of strategy that I think he's taking as a minority voice. Um, but I'd like to say a few things uh, that will set my comments in context. And uh, I think this, this really matters for the conversation today. Uh, I have a friend named Patrick Mitchell, 
And when I was writing a book, uh, I wanted to implement the good things I've heard about uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland working together. So he told me to read a couple books. And after I read the first book, I thought I had a pretty good story to tell. Then I read a second book, and I felt that I no longer had a good story to tell because it was getting very confusing. So I read a couple more books and some journal articles and, and Wikipedia, of course. <laughs> and by the time I was done, I had no idea what was going on in Ireland. And I found that the word Ulster made no sense to me. Every time someone used it, I thought I, thought I knew what it meant, and it just didn't mean that then. And so I gave up. And I told stories about Americans. <laughs> so I was safer. All right. So the thing I'm saying is everything that I would say about church-state relations and about political engagement is about the United States. I'm not, I would not make any comment about how you should engage this other than thinking theologically through the New Testament about those topics. I can talk about that, but I, I have no... I have no ideas uh, on, on how to engage in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. I have opinions about England because we lived there for two years, and we've never been to Scotland. And when I go, I won't care about that. I want to play golf at St. Andrews. All right? So when I talk about, I, I want to say this, that the five themes of the kingdom of God that I've sketched in the morning sessions, or I've sketched three of them now, in my view, ha, can, are independent of how to engage politically. Yes, I use these in my world in an Anabaptist fashion. But at the same time, uh, I'm trying to describe what I think the Bible says about the kingdom in its context without any regard to how to use this in our world. Although as a, as a preacher and as a Christian, I'm always trying to apply things. So I do move in that direction at times. But those five themes had nothing to do with political engagement in the United States, or at least I'd like to think they had nothing to do with that. Peter may disagree. I came of age theologically in the United States, and this, this may be the most important thing I say this entire week in Ireland for some of you. I came of age theologically in the era of Ronald Reagan politically. And I saw American evangelicalism in its fundamentalist phase move from widespread disengagement in the political process to deep activism at a very high level and as much as possible. When a man in my home church in the Midwest at a Baptist church decided to run for, for mayor, in our town, and by the way, he won and was the mayor for about 20 years, and a very good mayor. But when he ran for mayor, there were many people in my church who wondered if he had lost his faith. Because anybody engaged in the public sector at that time was involved in what was called by conservative American evangelicals the social gospel. And they just did not get involved in political uh, debates. They stayed out of it, and they preached the gospel and won people for Christ. All right? But 
under Reagan, I call it Reaganology, under Reagan, everything changed. And all of a sudden, and I remember this as a distinct experience, when I went to Trinity as a student in 1976, um, most of my seminary classmates were Democrats, evangelical, conservative evangelical Democrats, and there wasn't even an issue. That wasn't even a problem. And I went off to study in England, and I studied with Jimmy Dunn at the University of Nottingham. And when I came back in 1983 as a professor at Trinity, as an adjunct professor, and by the way, I eventually replaced Wayne Grudem in the New Testament department, which is one of my marks of distinction. Boom. Um, It's funny now when you think about it. At the time, Wayne wasn't Wayne and I wasn't me. We were both unknown people. Wayne was just becoming known. But um, when I came back, the student council president uh, on opening day chapel was wearing a military outfit. And it was just shocking to me that this would happen at Trinity. And I witnessed a a widespread shift toward endorsing the Republican Party as a form of partisan politics and it was consistent with and characteristic uh, with and identified with American evangelicalism, so much so that within 20 years or so, uh, the uh, uh, journalists could, could speak of evangelicals as a voting block for the Republicans. But I saw this happen under Reagan. Prior to that, uh, we had Jim Wallace at our school, and he was a very popular uh, student. I mean, he's not exactly a Republican. I mean, he was a radical fighter for left-wing causes. So I saw this shift, and I'd like to read to you a couple statements by people who matter in this conversation in American evangelicalism of what has happened in American evangelicalism over the last 30 years. The first one comes from Carl Henry. And if you know who Carl Henry is, Many in the Republican Party, evangelical Republicans, right-wing conservatives today, would consider Carl Henry one of their leading voices. So Russell Moore at Southern Seminary, and now a leading voice in the Southern Baptist Convention, looks at Carl Henry as a you know, primo uno uh, guy in, in the movement. And he said this. He was speaking about 30 years engagement of evangelicals. But do they have reason also to legislate all scriptural principles on public institutions, including government and schools? Even if they should become the majority, would it be wise to do so? He presses further. Will not Christians be disillusioned and in fact discredited if by political means they seek to achieve goals that the church should ideally advance by preaching and evangelism? Then he makes a jarring observation that ought to be stirred deeply into the what I say the soup of American Christianity. He says this: Despite all the media tumult over the moral majority and the high public visibility of its leader, who is Jerry Falwell, its extensive solicitation of funds during a six-year political crusade, claiming to speak for six million households. It has not achieved passage 
of a single major piece of legislation cherished by the conservative right, which means years and years of political agitation have led to no uh, passage of legislation that the conservative evangelicals would like to have had passed. Randy Balmer, who was a student at Trinity with me, and now a major professor of American evangelicalism and American church history at Dartmouth said, my reading of American religious history is that religion always functions best from the margins of society and not in the councils of power. Once you identify the faith with a particular candidate or party or with the quest for political influence, ultimately it is the face, the faith that suffers. Compromise, he said, may work in politics. It's less appropriate to the realm of faith and belief. And I would put it this way. In 30 years plus of engagement by conservative American evangelicals, in particular through the Republican Party, evangelicalism has continued to be diminished in the public face because of its political engagement. Now, the left-wing Democrats, they're just as active in the Democratic Party, so much so that if you go to a mainline church and you encounter a Republican, you might, be, uh, you might end up what we call gape-jawed. You'd be shocked to discover this. And the same is the case at evangelical churches. That if you were to suggest that you were a Democrat, you could maybe lose your job. I have friends who were pastors who, when they voted, publicly said they voted for Obama, lost their jobs as pastors because it was that evangelical or that Republican in orientation. So I speak from the American... Have I run out of time? I have a couple minutes. I speak from the American political context that I believe that American evangelical Christians should be involved in a faithful, embodied fellowship and witness as the best form of political engagement. So the best form of engagement, in my opinion, in the United States is for the church to be the church and not to try to be the nation. All right? This does not mean that we should not be involved. Um, I do have a history of political theory that I've read, that I get worried about the coercion of the majority. Uh, I, get, I do get worried about that, but that's a political issue that started way back, you know, in, in Athens. Um, and Aristotle and Plutarch and all these people worried about this. But uh, I believe that Christians ought to be a faithful, embodied fellowship and witness. And one of the best things they can do is exactly what Peter called the people to do. And I want to read to you a few references from 1 Peter, where Peter explicitly says Christians should be involved in public acts of benevolence. 1 Peter 2, when he used the expression in verse 12, when he said, when they see your good deeds, the Greek word is agathopoia. This is a word that is used for public acts of benevolence, building bridges. It was at times used for stealing wheat from boats that were passing by, so we won't, we won't engage 
piracy as a good deed as Christians. Uh, but they built bridges. They would provide food. Uh, they would go on embassies to provide uh, strength uh, for the, the city. But there are some other references in this passage. In verse 14, Peter says uh, that the governor, governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right, that is good deeds. In verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk, ignorant talk of foolish people, so they are to do good. And this is public acts of benevolence. Verse 20, how is it... That how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable with God. Chapter 3, verse 6. Like Sarah, who, bade her, uh, who obeyed Abraham. Let's see. If you do, and this said, you are her daughters. If you do what is good or right and do not give way to fear. And then chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter has a theology of good works for Christians as a minority voice in the Roman Empire as a way of demonstrating to the Roman Empire that they are good people, trustworthy people, reliable people, like Mennonites used to be in the United States. Everybody liked the Mennonites because they were always there to do good. Now they've become Democrats. And they really have moved into a partisanship that has hurt their witness in the United States as uh, Christians who are independent. In Acts 10.38, Peter says that Jesus was known for going around doing good. So Jesus was this way. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, to let your light shine so that people might see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. I think from Jesus... In his behavior and in his teachings, Peter learned that the strategy of a minority voice is to do good in the world and um, not bring bad reputation to the gospel. So I have a, my theory is a faithful, embodied fellowship and witness. And now the penny will drop. (laughs) Or the, the pound will drop. Thanks, Scott. So, Peter is now going to come and present his reasoning behind what uh, engagement in the world looks like. He's not going to respond to what Scott has said yet. They're going to have an opportunity to do that. A reminder again, questions at the end, if you came in a bit later, we'll take them by texting through to our mobile number. So, if you don't have it and you're bursting with a question, 07557 260 Peter, over to you. Thank you, Steve. Um, hopefully my team have taken that number for no other reason than just to abuse Steve Kay for the rest of the day. Um, so let me start with a confession. I have to say when I was asked uh, to, to step into this, I realized I'd never actually argued for political engagement. I've spoken about how but not why, because that to me was presumed we need to be politically engaged. And I began to reflect, have I made an error? Um, but I don't think so. So let's see if there's a, what the distance is between Scott and I on this subject. Um, Scott has given his presentation in in Kingdom Conspiracy. He says politics is a colossal distraction from kingdom mission. Politics entails the diminution of our kingdom message, which is certainly strong language, unhelpful language, um, and something that I think is wrong. 
So I'm just going to, because that makes it more interesting if I at least state that and go after it. So I want to set out three brief arguments, a biblical case, a historical case, a practical case for uh, uh, political engagement. Biblically, for me, it starts at those bookends in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. And out of the emptiness came life, and out of the chaos came order. And we see that relational order put in place in terms of marriage and family, through to the extent of family, community, and nations. And God is interested in the God of nations as well. Within that creation mandate, we're to be fruitful, to multiply, to rule, to have dominion. The whole earth is God's temple. And so we are as representatives, as Rick Watts reminded us at this event a few years ago, placed within the temple, which is the whole of creation. And we have a mandate to steward that. And we move through the text to the other, the bookends, through to the, from the garden to the heavenly city, to the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21, uh, where God will make his dwelling place with humanity. I think as we go through the text, we see within that these larger commands within the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, the basis of so much law in our society and so many other societies, because it is just good for how we as human beings created in the image of God live. We see characters such as Joseph and Esther and David and Solomon who engaged in politics in their own way as lobbyists, as rulers, as civil servants. We see the prophets speaking truth to power, calling out injustice and idolatry. And there's a prophetic role there, I think, for us in our engagement politically. We see Daniel as a fine example of someone who was uh, culturally and linguistically trained in the Babylonian ways but who combined that and brought that together with prophetic wisdom, who could interpret dreams and visions. And so goes, as somebody who understands the language and the culture and has a high position as a civil servant before the rulers to interpret dreams and visions. Cultural knowledge and the supernatural fused to have a huge impact. Jeremiah sets out the exilic paradigm for us to seek the shalom, the peace and prosperity of the city. Eugene Peterson defines shalom as the dynamic, vibrating health of a society that surges uh, with divinely directed, sorry, which pulses with divinely directed purpose and surges with life-transforming love. There's a richness to what we are to seek in exile, uh, in, in Babylon, in these places in which we have been carried. So as a minority, if you like, how do we seek the shalom of the culture around us? And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, articulates uh, something, nothing less, in my view, than a radical political manifesto. He is crucified for saying, on a political charge, Jesus is Lord. His claim to be Messiah and King bumps up against Caesar's claim to be Lord. And so there's a political element to what he is doing. When he engages before Pilate, there's that discussion about the kingdom, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. It's not derived from it, but it is for it. And Pilate says, you're saying you're a king? And Jesus says, you say I'm a king. For this reason I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. Whoever, bring, sorry, whoever belongs to the truth hears my voice. And as uh, that well-known other New Testament theologian with those funny initials, Tom Wright, said, Pilate, the first great postmodernist, says, what is truth? And they have this interchange around truth, and Tom Wright says, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story that is a story of the whole world. It is public truth. There's no such thing as a privatized faith. It engages in the public realm. So when Scott says in Kingdom's Conspiracy that fighting for justice means embodying justice in the local fellowship, I say, yes, 
but surely that is too small a vision. When he says striving for peace means striving for peace in the local church, I say yes, but surely too limited a passion for peace. The New Testament, uh, we, we, Scott referred to, to Peter uh, in that. Some would argue that the early church maybe gave up on politics. Um, but Paul used his Roman citizenship, a political act, in his appeals. Romans 12, we read this in the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Surely that's what we do as gifted individuals, put all of our lives as an offering to God and serve him. In Romans 13, we are to submit to the authorities. In 1 Peter 2, again, accept the authorities. And the context is usually important. In 1 Peter, you're talking about a tiny, tiny minority at that point. Live honorable and good lives, as Scott said. But what happens when you begin to grow? I want to come back to that when we look at history in a moment. We're in the business, and God is in the business of redeeming all things, all of creation being restored and being reconciled to him in Colossians. So what does it look like to participate in that? The redemption of all things. The body and this physical world matter. Creation care is then surely a political act against a consumerist culture. Resisting abortion on demand is a political act against a consumerist culture. Resisting the redefinition redefinition of marriage again a political act against a consumerist culture that says i want it on my terms in my way and when done by people under the rule of the king upholding his law in the temple that is his whole creation these are surely to push my argument kingdom acts so a christian lawyer who seeks justice is doing not just good work but god's work kingdom work a christian nurse who seeks healing is doing not just good work But God's work, kingdom work, that's the biblical case. The historical case, well, the early church was persecuted because it was a political threat to some of the powers as it it began to develop. Constantine was either the high or the low watermark of political engagement. But the church from its earliest days has always had a political edge to it. It's always been engaged in politics. William of Ockham, the 13th century theologian, shaped our thinking in terms of government with limited responsibility, the separation of church and state, property rights, liberal democracy. Much that we take for granted was shaped by some of those key theologians over time. The Reformation, which we'll celebrate the 500 years of next year, huge implications for the modern state as we know it. Individualism, liberalism, enlightenment, modernism, all those things that flowed from critical acts like that. And so secular writers like Larry Seedentop and Christian historians like Sarah Williams agree that the entire liberal framework, the democracy that we live under, is collapsing when it is detached from its Christian foundations. The political landscape as we know it has been shaped by Christians. Concepts such as the rule of law, democracy, participation, consent, representation, the word polity itself, in fact the word state, are drained of any meaning and moral content when they're separated from Christianity, because we have been so deeply involved in shaping those over time historically. Our faith has massively shaped modern life as we know it, uh, and, and in ways that many people don't fully understand. The historical case, and finally the practical case. See, I stand here now and we have freedom of religion because we have a Judeo-Christian legal and political system largely based on those ideas. 
I stand on the shoulders of Wilberforce and Earl of Shaftesbury and others. And the legacy of somebody like Wilberforce is immense. The RSPCA, founded by him and his friends. The Church Mission Society, legislation relating to chimney sweeps and to factories. The RNLI, he was one of the first 30 people to sign up to the organization that became the RNLI. Laws limiting what children could do, the reformation of manners, the Sunday school movement with Hannah Moore and others that really began education in a systematized way for those who were poor as we knew it, and, and female education as well. And as Gavin reminded us last night, Wilberforce was on occasion opposed by the church. And he had his own questions with the church. The church and the kingdom, are they identical? Are they the same? The church that's supported Nazism and Bonhoeffer found himself on the other side of. The church that supported slavery and Wilberforce found himself on the other side of. So descriptively, the church and this kingdom surely cannot be identical. So what have we seen practically here? Well, the modern slavery bill in the UK has been deeply influenced by slavery. Uh, sorry, by deeply influenced by Christians. A bill that Theresa May, now Prime Minister, but Home Secretary then helped to pass. There's legislation right now around extremism. And really anybody who gets more than six hours education could fall under the extremism bill. And so we have been engaging with politicians and others to point out the problems of that. And they say, oh, two things. Hey, it's not aimed at you guys. You're fine as Christians. We're trying to get the Muslims. So we've got two problems with that. One is it's so badly drafted, it's catching us. Because we do lots of education that's going to total more than six hours a week. And secondly, we don't agree with your second premise that it's okay just to go after the Muslims. We want freedom of religion for everybody. And so we're asking serious questions about the kind of legislation that's seeking to be passed. I am a non-violent extremist under any definition of that legislation for the views that I hold. That allows the government to take certain action against me if that bill is passed. We think that's deeply problematic, not just for me, but for everybody in our society. And so we're campaigning and engaging against that and pointing that out. The name person bill in Scotland is the most tragic piece of legislation I've ever had to come across. The notion that the state becomes the default guardian of every single child in Scotland. It's crazy. So if the state appoints a teacher or a social worker and they don't like what you as parents are doing, they get to usurp your right as the primary guardian over your children and make decisions in your behalf. That's an incredible extension of the state's right to become the primary de facto guardian of every child in Scotland. It was struck down by the Supreme Court on a legal technicality. They have not challenged the underlying premise of that law. When the technical changes around information sharing are made, it will go through unless the SNP radically change their mind. That's deeply dangerous. And nobody in Scotland was saying a great deal about it. The Christians were the first to come up and say, hold on, that's a problem for everybody. That is a deeply problematic way to go. We've had our own bills here, Lord Morrow's bill, in terms of human trafficking. And so Christians again got together and began to draft that bill and say, we need to go after the men who are purchasing sex. It's not enough to try and go after the traffickers because it's virtually impossible to catch them the way the legislation is framed. It is not enough simply to re rescue those women who have been trafficked because there is sadly an end of supply. And so the only way to do this is to tackle the demand for that and to legislate against the men who are paying for sex. Uh, that bill is copying a model in Sweden, and I think it has been successful there and will be here. Northern Ireland is one of three countries in the Western world that doesn't have abortion on demand, along with the South and Malta. Thousands of lives have literally been saved by stances taken. But the church is offering the support services around that, 
as well as campaigning for the legislation. And in my view, simply offering that in the local church fellowship will not be enough. The law would then have changed, and while we could rescue the ones and twos in local churches, thousands of babies would have been aborted as a consequence of not engaging politically on that issue. In our own church, and I'm involved in the Vineyard Church here, we have folks go out in the streets regularly. They get to do that because there's a freedom to go and say to people, if God could do one miracle in your life, what would it be? And we've seen hundreds and now thousands come to faith. But I know there are legal implications for that because when one or two people speak to the police, I am their ad hoc legal consultant who goes down and talks to the police as well and explains we can't be involved in hate crime because there is no crime. But in the current legislation, everybody's so sensitive about these things, we have these kind of conversations from time to time. But understanding the law allows us the freedom to continue to do that. For our guys to do healing on the streets and to have that throughout the UK where people are being prayed for and seeing healing. But the Advertising Standards Agency says, oh no, you can't claim any kind of physical healing. You can't claim any kind of belief in God. And we say, why not? And they say, you can't prove it. And you say, well, you can't prove the other. And so we engage in political debates around that and say, you can't frame that kind of legislation. You don't get to ban that and outlaw that because you have a worldview on that. We need to respond to these to keep the space. One of my favorite movies as I close is this, A Few Good Men. And Kathy, it's Tom Cruise, says, I want the truth. And Colonel Jessup says, you can't handle the truth. I can't do the accent. I'm not going to try. Son, you live in a world that has walls, and those walls are guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? I have a greater responsibility you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth, because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. And I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. And, provocatively close, I suggest that Anabaptists and others get to live life and do church because others have engaged politically. It is a luxury they have because others have done the hard work. They have a freedom of religion and freedom to share their faith, a healthcare and education system, charity status and tax benefits, because of the political work of others. And they are in danger of privatizing faith with a vision that is too small. Faithful presence, as James Hunter Davidson and others say, is good as far as it goes. But surely the biblical text demands more when it says go and make disciples. I am persuaded by Andy Crouch and others that we need to seek to understand how to use the power that we have well. And that includes institutional power, political power, the good gifts Sorry, gifts for the good that we assume the responsibility for some of these institutions. And so I push back to my learned friend Scott when he says, Christians have failed to embody the church as an alternative politics and have instead opted for improving and influencing Caesar. Well, yes, obviously, if you make it that false dichotomy. We are kingdom people who don't need the state, he says. And I say, but we as Christians are part of the state. The state is not something other. We are members of the state. We are kingdom people called to engage in it. Lives have been saved here because we have provided alternative communities and life-affirming legislation on abortion. And I don't see how you get from the Bible the notion of embodying justice in the local fellowship, is it? We're all political. We all impact the polis around us. And so I support the establishing of the local church as an alternative politic. 
Kingdom Conspiracy, his book, stops short of advocating withdrawal, but it also fails, in my view, to articulate what a positive engagement looks like. As prophets, surely we are called to confront. As priests, we are to cultivate what is good in our culture and mediate God to others and others to God. And as sons and daughters of the king, we exercise a royal authority to create newness. The king's people doing the king's work. Surely that is the kingdom. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Um, Okay, ignore the text number. We've enough questions. Um, and actually, there are some really good questions, um, but, but I don't need any more because I can't write down any more that are, that are coming in. And, and some people are prolific um, with their questions, <laughs> but have at least apologized for being prolific. Um, the only downside of doing it this way is I don't know who you are or who's asking the questions. You have the protection of anonymity. So for a few minutes each, why don't you respond, Scott, first of all, to what Peter has said? And then Peter, as if he hasn't already. Respond to what you said. <laughs> he doesn't need to respond. <clears throat> well, I disagree. <laughs> From the ground up, not only misdefining kingdom, but I, let me just make a, a couple points. Um, Peter's view is the uh, standard view. It's the majority view. I'm an Anabaptist. I'm used to being a minority. By the way, the Anabaptists thrived when they had no rights established, right? They were all being killed. And the early Christians thrived without having rights. So I I wouldn't agree with that one point about Anabaptists. And my view is not inactive. I believe the most active form of Christian engagement in politics is to be the church. So uh, it's not passive, it's an active engagement. A couple points. This is a a fundamental and theoretical point that deserves lengthy discussion and probably books to be written to clarify. But what God says to Israel as a redeemed covenant people is not directly what God is saying to the USA or to Northern Ireland. You can't, in other words, take legislation for Israel or the church and say that's what is to happen in the, in, in the federal situation in a pluralistic world. I think that we have to uh, be very careful. That is the Constantinian temptation. Uh, I believe that God's will is God's will. So whatever is God's will is God's will. But that doesn't mean that Christians can impose that will through the federal government on people who are unwilling to be imposed on by that will. That, that's where the issue comes. Yes, of course, the Sermon on the Mount is the politics of Jesus. But it's not Kuyper's politics. It's Yoder's politics. John Howard Yoder, the famous American Anabaptist, Stanley Hauerwas, another famous Anabaptist. The politics of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is for kingdom people who have been redeemed by Jesus. He's not talking to Romans. He's not talking to Israelites who don't want to follow him. He's talking to the followers of Jesus, and this is how they are to live. Another issue here is what is justice? I heard in Peter's statement that we are to fight for justice. Who's going to define justice? 
The justice that is defined in the public sector was formed by Baron de Montesquieu and Thomas Paine. It was not founded by Christians. They were deists. Uh, Paine was even worse than that. I don't know what you would call Thomas Paine. Uh, not so much an American. You know, he, he was there for a while just enough to cause a lot of problem and write common sense and the rights of man. And this was a complete rejection of standard and traditional ethical and moral and legal postures uh, by Paine and Montesquieu. And uh, the revolution uh, in France of 1789 transformed how laws were to be seen. They were the laws of the people rather than laws of God that were expected to be extrapolated by authorities. So the Sermon on the Mount is the politics of Jesus. I agree. But the justice that Jesus teaches is that God reveals his will through Jesus. He reveals that will to his people, and they follow him because they are following Jesus. That's a different form of justice than justice established by the U.S. Constitution or common law. I think that's England. I don't know. Do you have common law? From our, okay. So I can appeal here to Roger Scruton. Uh, so uh, they would, I, I, would, I would say that defining justice is a big category. Justice begins for Jesus with covenant redemption and evangelism. And only then can justice be established. All right? And I, I would like to hear Peter articulate a theology of the world. This has been one of the major shifts in the 20th century for evangelicals. Is that uh, what used to be the world and the church has now become culture and the church. And what used to be negative, the world, has become positive in culture. But I rarely hear anybody anymore in the evangelical world talking about worldliness as people who have been captured by the powers of this age and who need to be redeemed from the world and brought into the church. So world, culture, church, these are not identical terms. And so, therefore, a redemption of a people, I think, is required for there to be a theology of kingdom and justice. So I'm, I've made my case. I've written a book on this, on kingdom and how I define it with the five points. And I, I would say that what I heard in Peter is a classic example of what I call, not always positively, Kuyperianism. All right? And so in Kuyperianism... Uh, we see we begin with creation order, and God is king over all creation. God is redeeming creation. Whenever we're doing what God wants in the world, we're doing kingdom work. All right, that's why I wrote my book, because that's not how the word kingdom is used in the Bible. It's used for a people who have been redeemed, who are living under King Jesus. But I still believe 100% in Christians being active in working for genuine justice, genuine peace, working against death in the culture. I would, I would support uh, working against abortions. I would support working against war. I would, I would support almost all the things that you talked about supporting. I would think that is entirely fair. 
I get nervous when Christians engage themselves in the political process to such an extent they are identified with a political party. That's when I think we start losing our witness. If we stay independent of partisanship and fight for moral issues, we stand on firm ground as Christians. The minute we slide into partisanship, we start getting in trouble. That's my experience in the United States with Ronald Reagan and Wayne Grudem. Boom. I'm going to give Peter Wright a reply, but actually Scott has started to answer what was going to be the first question. Is there a difference between being involved in politics and being involved in partisan politics? And I think you've just you've put an answer. No, I want to say one thing. Jesus had a politic called kingdom. That's different than politics. So I think he would, you have to agree so with me on that. If you want to reply, Scott, and then maybe answer that whole politics and partisan politics. Yeah. I mean, very briefly, in, in, in replying to Scott, I think Israel redeemed the covenant of God, I agree. I'm persuaded by Chris Wright and his Old Testament ethics that some of the Old Testament applies to Israel and then through on to the people of God, and some of it is good for all of creation. And so there are parts of the Old Testament law or commands that are good for all of us and good for all of society. Um, in terms of justice, I agree our terminology there. Uh, we've worked hard in saying... It's in the modern, I think, often uh, shrunk down to a punishment. People say, I want justice, and what they really mean is they want somebody punished. And it loses out on the kind of siddiqui and the richness of the right relationships and establishing that. And so the church should be at the forefront of establishing right relationships and helping people understand and frame that. And then I think there's less need for the, the punishment aspect of justice that so many people are claiming. The one other thing I'd say is uh, I would think I'm... I haven't written a book for a good reason because I don't know exactly all that I think. I'm probably a charismatic Kyperian, which may be, a problem, may be problematic to most Kyperians. I, I think, yes, it's coming out of creation, but it's also like, taken on by thinkers like Miroslav Wolf in terms of work in the spirit and the work that we do and our, our giftings come out of our spirit and our understanding of that. So the work that we do is not just the creation mandate. That is there and that is right and all that we do is in that. But actually we are gifted by the Spirit. And so the lawyer is not just seeking justice because that's right in the creational order. It is what they have been gifted by the Spirit to do in the world around them. And that, if they are a follower of Christ and the King and they are part of a people and sent as part of the gathered, sorry, scattered church out into that space, then that's why I think they have to be doing kingdom work. Otherwise, I think we're in serious danger of undermining the work of the gather, sorry, the scattered church in the world around us. Partisan politics, yeah, that's probably problematic. I don't think we disagree much on American politics, <laughs> except when he says you're with Grudem. <laughs> so if those of you... He's a charismatic... He, oh, that's very questionable. And if you haven't read Scott's article on Grudem on Trump, that's why it's so controversial right now. So some of you might not be aware of that. You need to go and Google it for fun. <laughs> okay, um, one of the questions I was going to throw in, and I want to get it out now, because we've had some books quoted, obviously Scott's book on the kingdom. Peter's quoted Chris Wright, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. If you've got a lot of time in your hands, you want to sit down and rest with that. James Davison Hunter, To Change the World. Any other books that you would recommend to us just quickly to help us wrestle with this? Because we can't deal with everything now, but just to sow some seeds for, for people to take away. Well... Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult recommendation, but I think it's a brilliant book. Uh, I do not like to recommend John Howard Yoder because of his later uh, discovery of his moral failures. 
His book, The Politics of Jesus, is a brilliant book. So I recommend the book behind it by Etienne Torquemé called Jesus and the Revolution, which is where Yoder got his stuff and then adapted it. So I think those are, that would be closer to what I would say. Well, and, and for normal people, I recommend... Um... Torquemé is very easy to read. Um, no, I agree in terms of Yoder on both comments you made. And uh, I mean, I, Andy Crouch is interesting. I'm not saying I agree with all of them, and I don't think you do, but you've also written a comment, uh, an endorsement or a, on his books, both Second playing book. God and just playing God. Yeah, culture change, I think, culture is in, making. culture making is interesting, and he almost certainly disagrees with it, but it's still provocative. Andy Crouch, culture making, very accessible, playing God around power. It'd be good to hear your definition of world and culture, but someone I was reminded this morning in a conversation of someone once def- defined culture as it's our particular way of sinning around here. Um, it would be an interesting one to unpack. Um, and for those of you who are confused, that's Yoda, not Yoda. Okay. Um, where there are similarities between Northern Ireland and, and the U.S. at the minute, and, it, and it's great. I think it's great for us to have a focus outside of Northern Ireland politics, actually, because sometimes we, we tend to just see these in the, in the middle of our own particular issues. There is concern over this widespread, almost blanket-blind um, evangelical endorsement of Donald Trump. You, you've alluded to it. Someone's wanted to ask a question that there are, there are parts of Northern Ireland where um, we have perhaps in the past and even now have similar um, evangelical factors at work in our politics with some people. Someone has mentioned in their question that in their workplace, if you support the DUP, if you say you support the DUP, that's equated with Christianity and is despised and it hurts a Christian witness. So the question is, if pushing politically for a religious agenda is met with such disdain by the general public, should we actually be trying to legislate to fit people who are not in the kingdom into a kingdom mold? Should we be forcing the values of the kingdom on them politically? Uh, well, I, I mean, there's so many false premises in that question you want to rebut. So everybody's got a worldview. I mean, there's a stunning naivety to say that we're the only ones articulating any kind of worldview. Everybody has an agenda at play here. Uh, and I don't want to force my views on anyone. That's a theocracy, and that's deeply problematic. But I do want to articulate and argue for why some of the things that we want to talk about are good for everybody. God has put in place a relational order that I think works for all people because all people are made in his image. So there are certain pieces of legislation I want to say, I think this is good and helpful for society. And there are other moments where we're more prophetically speaking into that, and that's a little bit more edgy. Um, but the idea of forcing views is constantly used by my humanist, atheist, secularist friends, and it's stunningly naive. Uh, to me, I approached this from, a, from an ecclesial direction, and this was the problem with Andy Crouch's book. He can write a whole book on culture making and not talk about the church. That's problematic for me. All right, so I would say that I'm, I, I'm concerned. I don't want to coerce anybody in a modern society that would be against what the legal principles are. And if the legal principles or laws need to be modified, then I think that we would want to work in that direction. I'm much more concerned with articulating what Jesus expects of the church and Christian people 
and that the Christian people live those, um, those principles or discipleship consistently even into the public sector. Here is a problematic issue that happens frequently in public elections in the United States. We heard it consistently from Barack Obama in his first running as a candidate. Personally, he said, I'm against abortion, but it's a part of the law. I, as an Anabaptist, I would say, I don't care where you are personally or what the law is. Our responsibility is to follow Jesus. And if he's against it, I want to be against it at all levels. Rather than making a secular uh, uh, situation versus a church situation. So I would want to be consistent as a follower of Jesus as I move into the public sector and not water it down or shrink it to, on the basis of natural law or whatever else happens in the public sector so that now in the public sector we have to cooperate with the law. If that means compromise for me, I'm compromising the lordship of Jesus and surrendering to Caesar. Okay, final, final question. I want to go back to that, um, the, the partisan thing. The law exists to protect the weak and restrain evil. And so we have a responsibility to use our influence as we can. The question uh, from the questioner is, what red lines should we be aware of that crossing may result in our message becoming partisan or sectarian rather than remaining transcultural? And, and there, in brackets they said, where did evangelical, evangelicalism in the USA cross the red line? I thought I'd answer this one because I, I know Peter will have better answers for you than I can. Um, when Christianity's public posturing about cultural, legal, moral issues is rooted in their Christianity and their Christian stances, they are simply witnessing to Christian revelation and to the gospel. When they become identified with a political party's platform, and I critiqued Wayne Grudem, who came out in defense of Donald Trump, uh, because, and I said what Wayne Grudem should have said was, I hate the Democrats, Trump is a Republican, I'm going to vote for Trump. But instead he gave sort of a, a whitewashing of Trump's character, which I thought was a compromise of our Christian values. He can be trounced in character, and you can still vote for him. Uh, but there's no reason for us to back down from that. So to me, the red line is crossed when our moral agenda is determined by the ideology of a political party uh, rather than the Christian witness. So that, that's where I think we just, that's where I think the Anabaptists have something very forceful to say in public culture is that we must be consistent with our Christian witness, independent of a political party. So my first comment would be around the first part of the question, that the law is to um, protect the weak and sorry, restrain evil. If only that were true, that's not what the law currently does anymore. So we have legislated massively recently to do a lot more than that, to promote particular agendas. And so the law, law no, no longer has that minimalist um, sort of 
framework of just setting boundaries and saying thus far no further it is now being used as an active tool to do all sorts of things and that's where the problems come so the no name person legislation etc the extremism bills this is all about values being imposed through the law and so that's one of the reasons we have to get almost more involved or be a little bit more cautious around it the law is being massively manipulated on a series of agendas and I mean, where I do totally agree with, with Scott is the church has to be the city on a hill in Howard's language or, or the beacon in terms of setting out the right way to do things. And we often take politicians into church and say, come and see Protestants and Catholics mixing together. Come and see a social works program that is transformative because guess why CAP works, uh, Christians Against Poverty? We do the same debt backhand as most other debt organizations but being part of a radical community having a one-on-one mentor in that and often somebody exploring why you get into debt and dealing with that critical issue and praying and so often people encountering jesus in that journey is why cap's success rate if you want to put it that way is radically different than anybody else's it's because there's something transformative in meeting Jesus in that moment. So I don't ever want to lose that. And we have to have churches that are giving that example. And so when we, I think as Scott has rightly said in his book, begin to think that politics is the only way or becomes the, the predominant focus, we've got a problem. Uh, most of our energies are in saying, creating good churches and the right church structure that brings people in and actually transforms the individual lives. My caution was what I was reading was that that was kind of almost it. And then there was no external engagement, bigger picture. The church has to be the primary. And the red line from A's cross is when you shift in the church and the, and, and the coming together of kingdom people is no longer the primary place of emphasis. And too much of our energies goes into then political change and influencing or appealing to Caesar. That is problematic. But I, I'm just cautious of a false dichotomy being established there. And so I want to see both and done well for the kingdom. He wants to leave you a question. I have a question for Peter. I like that last bit right there. I thought he was coming around. Eventually he'll, <laughs> eventually he'll be an Anabaptist with me. Peter, here's a concern I have. I, I've heard this, is that the, uh, in engaging the legal process, because it's continuing to grow, this is happening in the United States, centralization where the, uh, we call, sometimes call it a nanny state, where the government gets bigger and bigger and begins to take care of more and more, by engaging the government, are we not indirectly and ironically supporting that very structure that we're seeking to undermine? By, by giving them the attention and going to them as the authority that we want to change, are we not propping up the nanny state itself? So... I don't think so because I read your example of that in your book and I think when it comes to the courts, if somebody sues me, I've got the t- if I go back to court against them and that's where I spent my time, I don't think I'm giving final authority to the court. I often said to Christian clients who made it clear they were Christians when I was working as a barrister, do not expect justice in this court. We will aim for it, we will aspire towards it, but we know as Christians that justice will ultimately be done. It may be through this court, which has, in my understanding, delegated authority, if you like, from God, if it's working well, but it may not happen. But I don't think in engaging in the court system that I am giving up final authority to God. It's still there, but he has put in place human rulers, including court systems. So I, I don't think I'm giving up on that. But, and I do think in going to them and pointing out that they're over-legislating, we're saying less is more. Stop legislating so much. Step back from that. That is deeply problematic. It is almost impossible to live in our society without breaking a law. 
No matter how hard you try, you will break some sort of code, law, speeding for sure, but lots of other regulations because we're over-regulated over and we're saying that's problematic. It's not a good way to go. So I don't think we're giving up final authority ultimately on that. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I'm just really impressed, given what Scott said on Saturday night, that he didn't take a cheap shot at Peter over skinny jeans. <laughs> I also wear skinny jeans. They're not actually skinny jeans. It's just that my body makes them look like they are. Um, Folks, thank you all. Particular thanks to Peter and Scott. Um, apologies if your particular question wasn't asked. You saw how pressed we were. We've only started to open some of this up. I hope that it's giving us something to think about. From a New Horizon board perspective, though, one of the great things is to see our ability at New Horizon to have these conversations in a safe place where, lo and behold, we can have different opinions on things and we aren't falling out with each other, but actually we're using it to stimulate each other and grow together. May that long continue. Let me pray for the rest of your day. Father, thank you for the stimulation we've had today. Thank you for Scott and Peter. Thank you for the endless hours they have spent thinking this through, wrestling with your word, wrestling with the world around them, trying to guide the rest of us in how we approach such a complex situation. Um, Father, just now I want to pray for Christians who are involved in frontline politics and who day by day are facing this challenge of where their faith collides with the public square of times when they realize they're representing a viewpoint that goes right against the flow and they're not quite sure how to handle it father give them wisdom and help us to be supportive of them even when we disagree with them we pray for the elections going on in the states and and the real conflict that is now happening as as christians are falling out with other christians not knowing how they reconcile what is in front of them and um, father we pray for wise voices to rise up in the church to guide and to direct we pray for humility in the lives of christians there and here as we engage father help us to be sensitive to the voice of your spirit give us godly wisdom that we don't have on our own and father help us to use even sessions like today um, to challenge each other and to challenge ourselves to think about how we live as kingdom people in a worldly kingdom that does not know you and that looks like it doesn't want to and yet that badly needs you help us to take the challenge to be kingdom people where we are in jesus name amen